Welcome back to Bank Squawk, the South Dakota Bankers Association podcast. This week, SDBA President Carl Adam is joined by Brett Ofdal, Director of the South Dakota Division of Banking. Carl and Brett share in conversation trends and topics currently affecting the banking industry, such as inflation, cannabis, ESG, and more. I want to welcome Brett Oftal, the director of the South Dakota Division of Banking, to the South Dakota Bankers Association for this afternoon's podcast. Brett, welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Brett, I just wanted to have a conversation this afternoon talking about things that are important in the banking industry here in South Dakota, certainly with your oversight over the state chartered banks here in South Dakota, and get some perspective thoughts from you as it relates to some of these uh, these items as it relates to the banking industry. I know setting the table, that's kind of the obvious uh, thing that our primary listeners would be bankers, but why don't you help us uh, get a, an understanding of what the primary mission of the South Dakota Division of Banking in South Dakota does? Okay. Our mission is to charter, license, regulate, supervise, and provide guidance to financial institutions in the state. So it's a little more broad than just banks. Um, we also regulate state chartered trust companies and then non-bank mortgage lenders, non-bank consumer lenders, which includes you know student lending, auto lending, all those things. And then we also have uh, money transmitters. But then the other piece of it also to you know instill consumer confidence, um, provide um, protection to consumers, and really the overall goal is to provide economic stability. And we do that through, we just went through a strategic planning exercise over the last year or so, kind of came out you know, five primary objectives out of that process to develop an IT you know, information technology examination program. So that's underway now. We've, we did some shadow work with the FDIC and now we've done a, a handful of exams on our own. To develop the workforce, I think everybody's facing the challenge of being able to recruit, train and retain qualified workforce. And part of that strategic plan, we, we worked with the futurist and looked 10 years out to try mm-hmm. to figure out what kind of technologies we would be using down the road um, and try to figure out what we need to do now to get ready for that. And then we're also going to be doing some work to optimize the exam process, and, and that's a lean term, um, but really just to try to take as much friction out of that as we can. How can we leverage technology to, to do the mundane, you know, to read the long documents and spit out the, the kind of, or flag the key things we're looking for sure. without losing the, the kind of human touch to it. And then another one is to keep up with technology trends, and that's kind of tied into that overall strategic planning process. So we've developed what's called a signals group, some people in our office that'll be tracking, you know, kind of new tech trends to understand what's going on with machine learning and AI and different things. And is there a, a use case for what we do? It's There is, they're not real obvious right now, and I think there's more to do, but that's something that is a long, long-term work stream. And, and the, the last one is one that you and I have talked about before is to um, modernize our, our regulatory structure, modernize our laws and rules mm-hmm. to make sure we have a level playing field, whether it's with state bank to national bank or, you know, our licensed entities to ones in other states. So we, we've done a little bit of work. There's quite a bit more work to do on that. Some parts of our code are up to date. Some parts of it need some love. So 
Um, and when I reached out to you, kind of the goal is to get input from everybody. We want to have all stakeholders involved in that process to make sure, you know, we're not just modernizing it to what we think it should look like, but, you know, it also needs to work for the industry. So we're trying to get that input there. So that's kind of what we do and, and why we do it. Well, very good. Great overview. And back to your point about the state banking code, those are things we've talked with our membership about. And if I recall, this is something that is probably on the uh, docket for the 24 legislative session, more than likely. It's more of a long run as opposed to a short run, but over time, looking to do some cleanup and updating. Yeah, I'd say the 24, way I'd put it is that would be the earliest we would be ready to go. I mean, I think there's a lot that has to happen between now and then. And just the way our process is set up, you know, we have to have bills, you know, and act explainers for that to sure. up in August, you know, to be ready for that following January session. So we'd have to have a lot of work done between now <laughs> and, um, you know, this time next year. So as far as I know right now, there isn't anything on fire or melting down, you know, so it, it's not that we need to rush to fix something, but I think we really want to be thoughtful and and try to look ahead to figure out you know, where we're going and like we're all kinds of sidebars, but you know, there's some talk about what do we need to do for custody rules for crypto assets. Is that going to be a piece of it or is that going to be a separate item entirely? Sure. You know, I don't know, um, but I think there's a lot of those different things going on. And even if that is a separate item, is there anything we need, need to do in the banking code specifically to address that, to either authorize it or put, you know, security standards in place you know I, I don't know there just a there's a lot to right. it and I, I would rather take the extra time to do it right than than pin ourselves to any kind of an arbitrary deadline okay very good thank you for that explanation I'm sure you're a lot like me with respect to you know we constantly seem to reference the global pandemic that is still before us but certainly um, we hope is you know soon to be behind us. But, you know, it's been very challenging for everyone living through the global pandemic. It's affected every industry, supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then nearly the $7 trillion in federal stimulus funding that has entered the banking sector and how it's affected banks, not only in South Dakota, but across the country. How has the division of banking changed or altered your exam process to account for this massive increase in deposits in our banks? I wouldn't say it's changed our process. It's probably changed how we look at that a little bit because um, we're very aware that this big influx in deposits and corresponding increase in assets of the bank's balance sheet wasn't of their doing. Right. You know, it, they were very active in facilitating PPP loans, so they added assets in that mm -hmm. way. But and a lot of times those loans just turned around and stayed on their books as a you know. So it. There was a huge swell, so it's definitely affected liquidity ratios in a positive way. I, mean, I think all but a couple of our banks have a lot of liquidity. I think quite a few of them would tell you they have more liquidity than they really, they really care for, yeah. have a need for. Um, but on the flip side, it's put some pressure um, on earnings because everybody got flooded with money, so their loan demand has definitely dropped. I mean, we've we went from... I'd say a median loan to asset ratio of 65% in late 2019 to right now we're about 51%. So it's been a material drop in, in loans on the as a percentage of total assets. And then it's also put some pressure on capital ratios, you know, even though from a dollar perspective, it most, if 
all but a couple of our bank's capital account has increased. It just hasn't increased fast enough to outrun the massive right. growth in, in deposits and, and assets. So um, it has put some pressure. Um, I, I think the one thing we're really talking a lot about right now and we're watching very closely is, you know, I think bankers are probably focused on the AOIs, um, a, the accumulated other comprehensive income. You know, they don't like to see that negative number right now mm-hmm. with um, securities they purchased that have gone down in value. But for the most part, I mean, if they did a little bit of that and they have plenty of liquidity, it's really a non-event. They just hold on to those securities and they, they're still paying. Mm-hmm. They'll earn those out. But there are a couple banks that went pretty long and pretty big, you know, got into a lot of three to five year um, securities last fall in a little bit of search for yield. Um, those don't look very good right now. And depending on how big they went into that, coupled with loan demand coming back a little bit, you know, that we could see a pinch on liquidity on a couple of those, and then they're going to be faced with a, probably some difficult decisions. Do you go borrow money from the FHLB or some other um, liquidity provider? Um, do you sell some of those securities at a loss to, you know, free up some money on the balance sheet? So I, it, we're watching that pretty close. The other, I guess the other thing, the other impact it's had that we're watching is I think there were some transactions probably at least in a discussion phase that are just simply off the table because sure. from what I can tell parties, um, neither side is really willing to take that whole, that whole sandwich, you know, on who takes that, takes that loss off the books. So in some, it hasn't changed, um, how we do what we do, but we're, we're definitely watching different things. You know, I think you go back to 2019, we were, we were watching liquidity pretty close. Um, it was pretty tight back then. Liquidity was fairly expensive, and uh, I, I don't know. I think we could end up back there. I think maybe quicker than we thought, just right. given on the volume of deposits that have flown everywhere. Very good. Well, from global pandemic and federal stimulus funding to inflation. So in the last year, we've seen, you know, the most significant inflation in in 40 plus years. Cost of home ownership, rent, gas prices, cost of food, cost of construction, and the list goes on and on. Has the Division of Banking, do they offer, do you offer any best practices for banks on how to maneuver through these challenging times? You know, we haven't put anything out, you know, in a formal sense, man, I guess, just one thought would be for banks to be, and, I, and I'm sure they are, but just be really have that open line of communication with customers when you're talking about these things and even getting back to basics and helping them with the budget, um, you know, helping them through that process. But, you know, we're seeing that ag operating lines, you know, there's loan demand's been down in that area too, but I would expect that's going to come back just because of the um, really rapid increase in those costs, rent, fertilizer, all those inputs are going up. But I, I think that open line of communication is really important, you know, because on top of all that, the interest rate on that operating line is probably going up too. So I, I did have some sidebars with some bankers yesterday at an event, and, you know, they've had some customers that said, well, instead of borrowing at that, I'm just going to pay for it. It might be another one of those things that leads to some liquidity going away um, with, if folks are going to spend down some of that money. But... Yeah, it's a tough issue. I mean, I, I have, you know, three kids in school. 
um, you know, we're fortunate. We've, we've been able to weather it, but I mean, I think there's families out there that are really impacted. And, you know, one of the things that happened during the pandemic, there was the USDA pushed out a bunch of money and paid for school lunches for everybody. And, you know, this was before inflation really kicked in, but now you have inflation kicking in and that program's no longer there anymore. So suddenly people are kind of getting this whipsaw of not only having to buy more expensive groceries, but having to pay, get back into the habit of paying for lunches every day at school. And that rate's gone up, of course, because again, inflation, I mean, it's, it's really seeped into every part of the economy. And I guess um, from my experience the last few weeks, it seems like it's, it's accelerated at the grocery store. And every time I go there, almost every item I pick up is more than it was the last time I was there a week or two before. And not, it's not a couple cents difference. I mean, it's a, it's a material increase every time you go. So I, I don't know. I think we're just gonna have to be really flexible and work with people because I, I think it's causing some pain on the home front. Well, Brett, your points are well taken. And uh, I think that's really sage advice. You know, bankers in South Dakota, I think, are very uh, empathetic and have the, you know, certainly the best interest of their customers at heart. When they need something, at least lend a helping hand and try to help them work through some of those things. I mean, Joan and I have experienced the same thing. We've uh, certainly noticed the material increase in things. Everything from, you know, gas, groceries, just everything. I went, not to talk about my lunch habits, but I picked up fast food before you got here. And I'll tell you, I couldn't believe for for just me, a, a burger, a soda, and the fries was $14. <laughs> so I chuckle at it, uh, but nonetheless, it does create a hardship for people. And it's real, and people are experiencing it. So appreciate your comments. So the next topic I wanted to bring up, and you and I have had a number of discussions about this over the last couple of years, is... Uh, is cannabis. So as you're well aware, cannabis remains the on a, the federal controlled substance list, subsequently making uh, use of cannabis against federal law. But in 2021, the South Dakota legislature passed a bill to provide South Dakota banks the ability to bank legally licensed hemp and cannabis businesses here in South Dakota. What is the division's expectation for banks that are considering making cannabis in South Dakota in today's environment? Yeah, so earlier this year, we issued some guidance on this topic, and we didn't provide, you know, a 10-page detailed guide, because there's a lot of guidance out there already. Mm -hmm. So what we tried to do with that guidance is to pull into one document all of the resources that are out there, the FinCEN guidance, right. the federal agency guidance, and, and make it more of a, it, it's guidance, but it's from what we expect the banks to do, but it, it's more of a resource to pull all that stuff together. But I guess our expectation at this point, whether a bank is going to offer services or not, uh, we would expect by this point of the board of directors to have discussed this issue and to have, you know, made a policy that of what products and services they're going to offer, if any. And on the flip side, if they're not going to, just adopt a policy that says we are not going to bank marijuana-related or hemp-related customers. Whatever the position of the board is, it should be documented in a written policy to give clear guidance to staff so that when they're faced with that customer or that inquiry that comes in, they have clear and consistent guidance to address that with. You know, 
we, we do have a couple banks that are pretty serious. I think one just onboarded their first customer here in the last week. And both of those banks that are going down that path have engaged a third party um, because mm-hmm. the, the level of transaction monitoring that I think is required um, is pretty extensive. And maybe a bank could do that on their own internally without something. But there are third party providers out there that this is what they do every day full time. Mm-hmm. And they get you get all the way down to the account level to monitor each and every transaction coming in and out of that account. So it, it's a pretty high expectation. So I think the the last piece I would give is that I'm not sure it would make sense for a bank to try to do that for one customer or two customers. I, I just think the cut from a risk reward cost benefit analysis. I don't think that makes any sense. And um, I, again, I think it's highlights the importance of the board to sit down, talk it through, and adopt a policy, whatever that might be. You're going to do it, you're not going to do it. We're only going to do deposit accounts, or we're going to take deposit accounts and land, you know, whatever that may be. I think just having a clear policy, because if you're going to get in, it's not going to be cheap. Yeah. Well, that's a really good perspective, Brett, and I thank you for sharing that. I hearken back to when I was a community banker, and you know, wrestling with, you know, BSA and AML policies. And this is pre-cannabis. We didn't even imagine this kind of coming down the pike here in South Dakota. But I also contend that you'd have, you know, it's always get to know your customer, know your customer. But if I've got a customer, sometimes you're the last to know, for example, talking about cannabis, they're a trucking company. They might all of a sudden do backhauls on MRBs, marijuana-related businesses, and you're the last to know. How do you maneuver through that? Is that is that something if you find it and you have a policy that you're not banking cannabis? Are those things that can be worked through on your policies? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I and mean, I think it does highlight the need to, to know your customer and have those ongoing conversations. You know, has there been any change in your business? You know, since because you wouldn't think trucking business or you've got a customer that owns commercial real estate. Right. Doesn't immediately jump to your mind that they might be <laughs> leasing space to a dispensary or a grow operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that's probably one of the, in addition to, managing the relationship of an actual MRB and marijuana-related businesses, but to know your customers' customers, even outside of that specific context, to know who's leasing space to a marijuana-related business or who's providing, you know, I think there's the tier one, two, and three, you know, the tier one are the people that actually touch it. The tier two are the ones, the trucking company, the guy that provides the the plumbing and a wiring to set up the grow up, and then there's the third tier where it's an accounting firm doing work for them, a law firm doing, you know, there's a lot to it. And we're going to have to kind of find our way through this. Other states have already done it, but I don't know. The, the BSA obligation in this area is really high. You know, it was June of 21 for the state bar convention. I was involved in a CLE on marijuana and I didn't ask enough questions before I said, <laughs> yes, it's kind of a character flaw of mine, but I found out that I had an hour to talk about you know, the the bank, the regulatory requirements for marijuana. And I, I really kind of had that panic moment that what the heck am I going to talk about for an hour? But then when I went through and started kind of going down that rabbit hole and you print out the FinCEN guidance and then you there's 15 things that are linked in there and 
pretty soon I got a foot thick stack of stuff on my desk and then the next panic moment was how the heck am I going <laughs> to provide any kind of rational coverage of this stuff in an hour so it, it's a lot and I would just encourage everyone to reach out to experts because we're not the first one that's a benefit you know other states have done this already um, but it really highlights the need to be really diligent about it to know not only know your customers but what's going on in your marketplace if your community has approved 15 dispensary licenses there's a pretty good chance somebody you're banking has a relationship with one of those entities and you need to know that right very good forecasting brett the safe act which we are all as bankers familiar with um, before congress has passed the house a number of times is the conference of state bank supervisors do you is, do you have a forecast do you think this is something that will be passed in election year, more than likely, nothing's going to come through. Uh, but in the next Congress, do you think this is going to gain momentum going forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my crystal ball isn't very good on this one, Carl. Yeah. Um, I, I thought there was a chance this year when it was included in the competes bill. I thought there was a chance because the House had gone, you know, they had done the, the broader discussion of mm -hmm. criminal justice reform and kind of came back around to supporting the SAFE Act and then it was included in the that bill and, and the majority leader pulled it out. There was bipartisan support, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but when there is it going to be a priority? Um, I don't know. I, sh I sure hope we can solve this issue. Um, I mean, the larger issue is to, to talk about delisting, um, to recognize the reality that what over 40 states have right adopted. right at 40 so, I think yeah legalized in some fashion or another um, I don't it just doesn't seem like there's really any traction for that and I think there's some pretty big lobbies that have an vested interest yeah. in it not um, going anywhere but I don't know our, our federal counterparts are really in a in a tough spot you know they they really can't even provide guidance on how to how to do this because their view is we're providing you guidance how to violate federal law and, and that puts them in a really, really awkward spot. And, and, and us too, to some, I mean, to some extent, but we've got the competing, you know, state, it's legalized at the state level to whatever extent. So you, you have to provide just the reality intervenes that there are gonna be businesses in this space now that it's legalized at the state level and the banks are caught in the middle. Yeah. And I think there is a, what we've seen in other states, there really is a public safety issue that you have to address. You don't want all this cash on the street. It's led to really bad outcomes at some of these dispensary mm -hmm. locations. Well, I appreciate your perspective. Probably an unfair question, but certainly one that we're all paying attention to just because of our industry. And yeah, your crystal ball is like mine, a little foggy, hard to, hard to read at times. A little times. hazy. A little hazy, exactly. Recently, Brett, I was uh, at the American Bankers Annual Convention, and had the opportunity to listen to acting FDIC Chair uh, Marty Gruenberg discuss climate-related financial risk. You know, he was staring at a thousand bankers and uh, delivered a very well laid out, you know, I wouldn't say message, but he broke it down into layperson's terms, which was helpful. He broke it down into physical and transitional risk stating that all banks need to have a better understanding and continue to educate themselves and offer methods to assess climate-related risks. Broke it down into two, physical and transition, as I just mentioned. Physical includes risk that may be harmful to people and property. 
These risks include changing weather patterns that may include increased risk of flooding, droughts, rising temperatures, rising sea levels, all of which may drive migration patterns. Transition risk, uh, shifts in public investment to include public and private spending, changes in investment performance, the change in technology, thus reducing the carbon footprint. Sectors of the economy may become impacted uh, with less revenue to pay obligations and ultimately decrease in value uh, of balance sheet for banks and customers. Will climate-related financial risk be continue to be in, incorporated in state uh, division of banking examinations? Or aren't they ultimately already embedded in there? We understand, a lot of the banks in South Dakota understand their risk profile. Uh, you know, this was on the heels of Hurricane Ian, so it was very timely, you know, as it relates to physical climate risk and migration patterns and uh, shift in public investment. It all became very relevant to us listening to his comments. But again, here in South Dakota, not that we are, you know, necessarily protected from major weather patterns and concerns, but I believe a lot of our banks in South Dakota build that into their overall risk profile without calling it, you know, climate-related financial risk. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I guess in the short answer, I would say we've had no discussions about changing our exam process or approach to incorporate some new category for this. But I mean, think talk drought, for instance. I mean, right. we've almost the entire state last year was pretty severely impacted by drought. This year, it's been a little bit more uneven. The southeast area has been really dry. South central has been dry. West of here has been dry. But does that require some different analysis? I mean, I think our banks are pretty well aware of the impact that has on their operators um, in the area. So, I mean, I think it's to some extent baked in the cake already. The transition risk is a little bit maybe different because that seems to be more the political environment mm -hmm. where, you know, we shut down some pipelines that are midstream. And I've been driving back and forth on Highway 34 the last couple of weeks on a couple hunting trips and they're starting to move some pipe out of one of those mm -hmm. storage yards, you know. So that's, I think, to me, an example of transition risk. There was a lot of money spent to stage that project out and it got cut off at the knees and now it's going the other way. Um, but I would, I think both of these physical and transition risk, when I think of that, I just think of the insurance industry. Um, you know, I, I think the property and casualty industry was already under some strain in Florida and you look at what their balance sheets are going to look like after a storm like Ian. And maybe part of the discussion should be instead of providing um, subsidized flood insurance like we do through the National Flood Insurance Program, which is incentivized and encouraged building mm -hmm. along the coast of coast of Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, maybe maybe we need to have a conversation of whether or not that makes sense. Well, and, and to your point, that was one thing that I omitted from my comment. Um, and Chair Gruber commented on that. He said the dependency on insurance and government bail, bailouts isn't sustainable, which, again, I would agree with because there is some sort of codependency that, hey, I can be bailed out building below sea level <laughs> and or multiple, you know, times. multiple times. And then my P&C company paying damages on something when I'm at five feet above sea level. So... It's, it's interesting, certainly in our industry and how the FDIC is looking at putting this action item kind of in play. Again, I, as a, as a retired former banker, remember 
you know, your risk profile, understanding your customers, understanding, you know, the droughts, the weather patterns, those types of things, and what can you do to help mitigate that to protect your customers, protect your bank. So uh, very interesting. Yeah, there could be some trickle-down effect, but I think we're fortunate, just like we're pretty safe from the direct impact of a hurricane. I think we're also a little bit insulated from the indirect financial Mm -hmm. impact from this. These other places are going to have to figure it out way before we do whether there's sea level rise or whatever the issue is, there's the there's been a lot more building along the coast, so we have more exposure. And just look at, again, inflation creeps in here. Look at the cost to rebuild some of that stuff. It's going to be 20, 30, 40, however many percent higher than it was to build it in the first place. Well, that all falls on those P&C carriers, the reinsurers, and or the government if and when we start writing checks to people for for building in a flood or hurricane prone area right right well thank you for your perspective on that one other topic that you and i've had a variety uh, and a number of conversations about is environment social and governance it's been a hot topic uh, not only in congress but esg has also found its ways to state legislatures across the country ESG-related bills have been challenging for, you know, the financial industry since they often include a mandate for banks to do or don't do certain things related to a variety of topics, which includes climate, fossil fuel, green energy, guns, etc. How does the Division of Banking have or do you have a position on ESG-related items or bills? You know, on the the two bills last year, we did not have a formal position on those. Had a lot of conversations with people, um, and I'd always just try to ask the basic question, what's the benefit of this bill? And I never really, I don't think I got an answer to that question from anybody. And I think that's pretty telling, you know, and I think it highlights the risk of pushing social policy into the regulatory space, because if there's... I don't say there's nothing behind it, but if it's driven by someone or a group's kind of personal belief, that can change, right? And we already, we have that whipsaw effect at the federal level. Look at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for instance, how Mm -hmm. that has, I mean, talk about the pendulum swinging with each election going back and forth, and now we're, we're at the other extreme, right? Where we went way down the deregulatory piece the last administration, now we're making up for that you know, fourfold now. And that would be my fear. I think one of our strengths as an agency is always that we try to stay in the middle of the road. We don't get we don't get too excited about this or we don't get too lax about that. We kinda keep doing the same thing all the time, focus on the risk, use common sense. And sometimes the federal agencies maybe get too lax during the good times and they get too overboard during the tough times. And I think neither one of those two are good. So I don't want us to be like that where we get forced by uh, some kind of social policy intervening into what, what we do or what the banks do to exacerbate those kind of issues. We have these issues, we have to face them. The bankers already have to face them in mm-hmm. conversations with city council and legislators and right. business people in their community, but I'm not sure how that helps. That said, I mean, I, just in the political environment we are, at least at the federal level, I, I would guess some of this is going to continue. Um, there'll, there'll be that next bill that does something like that and we'll have to deal with it. But I, again, I haven't figured out 
what the benefit is um, other than a political statement. Well, and, and Brett, again, you and I have had discussions in the halls of the Capitol over the last year plus uh, on topics like this, and I, I'm glad to know that somebody else scratches their head as much as I do uh, on the topic. And again, it's something that we're going to have to work through. It's here. It, it's real. Um, we're seeing it across the country in other areas. Um, but just want to, you know, we want to uh, be respectful of the process and hope that uh, it just doesn't get to the point where banks are in the middle of, you know, literally in the middle of all of these types of social issues trying to, you know, squash credit. So hard to legislate our way out of these things or legislate your way into them. So those are some concerns that uh, I think we as bankers have, but we'll just have to keep paying close attention to this as, you know, session comes around the corner here. After initially assessing that the rise in inflation was temporary, and the Federal Reserve has changed its view and is now aggressively raising interest rates to contain inflation, as are central banks around the world. Do you have in your crystal ball what you anticipate the Federal Reserve will do to combat these inflationary pressures? And can you predict when you'll see these rising rate environments subside? Oh, I have to say at the outset, I am not an economist and I don't even play one on TV. I think the other thing we can't ignore is that at the same time we're raising rates, the Fed is also shrinking the balance sheet, which I think is absolutely necessary. I mean, the balance sheet went up to $9 trillion and it had all kinds of stuff in there, corporate junk debt, you had mortgage bonds, you had everything in there. And I just don't think as a normal order of business, the Fed should be that involved in the economy on a, on a day-to-day basis. But that takes liquidity out of the market. And you know we've seen past efforts to try to shrink the balance sheet and raise rates. It's caused some dysfunction in certain markets, the repo markets and things like that. So we have to, you know, they've got a lot to balance. I don't, I don't envy their position. They've got a lot of economists helping them mm-hmm. through this process. But I think it's going to be really interesting. I read an article that was fairly terrifying. I wouldn't recommend reading this before you go to bed, but um, this this Nouriel Roubini is an um, economics professor at uh, New York University. And I'll just, the title of it is, We're Heading for a Stagflationary Crisis Unlike Anything We've Ever Seen. Um, I wouldn't recommend reading it with your Cheerios in the morning, um, <laughs> but they just really talk about how not only the Fed has maybe cornered themselves, this is a worldwide thing because all central banks pretty much are raising rates right now. So it's going to cause a slowdown. We're starting to see that, I think, already. But if we have a really deep slowdown, we don't have the luxury we did in 2008 where you could, what did we do? The Fed intervened pretty Mm -hmm. significantly and did that by taking on debt. Well, we already have the debt now, so we're going to cause the slowdown. This is kind of the thesis in the in the article, but we're going to cause the slowdown, which normally would, you know, inspire some kind of monetary easing, but because of inflation, that doesn't make sense. Because if you're easing, you're going to cause more inflation. So I, I don't know. Again, I don't envy their position. It's going to be it's going to be a tough tough thing to to pull off that I think they've maybe given up on the ice. soft landing was the other thing that was thrown around maybe not as long as transitory but I 
I don't know that they've totally given up on that, but I think most, I think a lot of market watchers and influencers have, are starting to build in a hard landing as mm-hmm. a base case mm-hmm. now. So I, I think there's going to be a correction. How deep, how long? I mean, that's the thing I don't think anybody can predict, but there's a lot more debt out there, not just on our in the U.S., but worldwide. Right. You know, because rates were so low for so long, countries got used to, even developing countries got used to financing new things and good things by borrowing more money and that's all well and good as long as you have the means to you know pay that back um but rates going up significantly you know the 30-year mortgage rates close to seven right at seven i think 6.9 and not that that has a direct impact on these other things but i think it's pretty telling you know, and, and short-term money's at 4%, so yeah. it, we've come a long ways in six months yeah. from where yeah. we were. Yeah, throttled down, it's definitely been uh, moving very, very rapidly. My final question is, you kind of gave us a, a good stopping point, we'll noodle a little bit on that article that you just mentioned. A, a soft landing, hard landing, I also use that terminology, but what does it really mean? I think of a soft landing maybe being a V-type correction, which I think we are engaged in right now. We are actively in some sort of a, you know, quasi bear market versus a hard landing would be a U-shaped type recession, maybe a little bit longer term. Do you have in your mind, again, I know you're not an economist, but a, a smart, good thinker. Do you have a time frame on this? Is there anything that we can... Uh... No, I have no idea. You know, I, there, there's kind of that saying out there, and I think it applies here that... You know, a recession is when you lose your job, and a depression is when I lose mine. I think, think that could be the difference right. of a soft and a hard landing. If you're one of the ones that loses your job, it's not a soft landing. Right. You know, you're you're suddenly out of a job and, and looking for a new one. Right now, I think there are those other jobs, maybe in a different sector. But I I guess I just I'm not. Hopefully, a correction is is short term. But the problems we face as a country are not short term. We have a huge national debt. The Fed has eight plus trillion dollars on its balance sheet. We kind of have a mismatch generationally between the number of people retiring and the number number of people available to fill those jobs. So we we have some grown up stuff to address, and I sure hope that our elected leaders are up to that task. We we've, we've got to get to it and kind of put some of these social fights to the side and get something done because the longer we put off some of these things, that you know, the less options you have and, and the more painful they are when we get there. Yeah, great advice, Brett. Well, I appreciate you will end on that note. It's been a great pleasure to have Brett Oftal, the South Dakota Director of the Division of Banking, as our guest today. Brett, thanks so much for coming down and sharing your thoughts with us on the banking industry in South Dakota. You bet. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Thank you for listening. On the next episode, Carl is joined by a special Holly Jolly guest. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! What's on a banker's wish list to Santa? Well, tune in to find out.